You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We've been talking a lot about, you know, the flu pandemics that have occurred, but right now we're in a pandemic with the coronavirus. So what are your thoughts with that? Oh, I have many thoughts on this. Uh, may I tell you a brief story about how we ended up our, creating our therapeutic program for the coronavirus? Of course. Sure. So let us go back in time to January. It was the week of January 22nd, and that's when the Netflix documentary was coming out. I had rented a small Ewing theater in San Francisco so my team could all go watch it. And we, we were all, I'd say, like nervous because we had not seen a, a preview, so we didn't know what it was going to look like. The first time we were going to see that documentary was when it got blasted up on all over the internet. And I was trying to tamper people's excitement and just be like, look, don't worry if you look good or you look bad. Like, honestly, like there's so much stuff on Netflix. Nobody's going to watch this anyway. But that was the week that uh, China quarantined 57 million people. And so suddenly we, because the title was pandemic, how to prevent an outbreak. Suddenly we ended up being on the front page of Netflix for like five straight weeks. And it was, I, I just, I remember waking up that morning because I heard that my phone was going like, bing, 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 bing. And I was looking and like every channel of ways that people could communicate me with me was saturated. And that was happening to Sarah Ives and some other team members as well. So that was crazy. But the, the, the thing that happened next week was after that, I, I flew out to Washington, D.C. And I was flying out to go to this thing called the BioThreats Conference. And this is held once a year and. It's, as the name would suggest, it's where people who are doing research into either bioterror or natural outbreak or pandemic potential viruses all meet up. And so I fly in and I brought my, uh, my wife and my three-month-old with me just because I, I travel a lot, or at least at the time I was traveling a lot, and I, kind of, I was missing my daughter. And so I was like, <laughs> I convinced them stupidly to come fly with me to Washington, D.C. to this thing. And... The conference is in the same building as the hotel. So they're up on the fifth floor. I go down to the first floor that morning and I see there's a crowd and I go in and Fauci is speaking and he's telling the audience that, look, at this point, I think we need to be realistic that this virus is likely no longer containable inside of China. And the room was electric. And I noticed that Fauci was deliberately not shaking people's hands. And I, at that point, realized that I'm like, I may have just literally brought my wife and child into a powder keg because these people flew from all over the world to come to this conference. Like one of them, this virus might be in the building right now. And so I retreated. I had a meeting set up with DARPA the next day to talk about our antibody discovery technologies that are really good at, at rapidly producing antibodies against novel viruses. And we had had this meeting been planned for like two months in advance. And the original purpose of the meeting was I was going to talk about how we were going to like do a test run of our technology against hantavirus and lastavirus. Uh, but I roll in there. Well, I knew the day before. They're like, get rid of all that. Tell us, can you do anything for the coronavirus? So I go in and I, I pitched what ultimately is what we did, which is I said, look, the problem is that every time there's a new outbreak, it takes too long to make a new medicine. Uh, that, that happened with Ebola over and over again. We eventually made antibodies after repeat outbreaks. It happened with SARS. It happened with MERS. Every time there's a new pandemic, a new outbreak, uh, our, our slow pace of discovering new therapeutics uh, is, is too, really, too slow to help in the, the first wave. 
And I, I, I thought I had a way around that, or at least to shorten the time by taking advantage of the fact that the novel coronavirus was a cousin of SARS, that they were at the amino acid level, 74% identical in the receptor binding domain, which is the part of the spike that it uses to uh, attach to our lung tissue and other cell tissues and, and infect them. And people had, after the SARS outbreak, they spent a couple of years developing really good antibodies that were able to go bind to the spike and block SARS from infecting human cells, so neutralize it in vitro. And they could also protect mice from a challenge of SARS in vivo. And the only problem was those antibodies, they, they were really well studied. They were crystallized. We had three-dimensional structures of how they interacted with the receptor binding domain, but they hit the wrong virus. They hit SARS. But what I, what, I, what I told DARPA and what we ultimately did was that I have this technology that lets us search billions of versions of those antibodies. So it, it basically ma massively explores the mutational combinatoric space to adapt them to now recognize the novel coronavirus. And the advantage of that is we'd be able to basically stand on the shoulder of giants and surf on two years of research that they went into to proving out, isolating, and characterizing these antibodies that were really good, potent treatments for SARS and now adapt them to, to work on the novel coronavirus, which is what we did um, over the next few months uh, in my company. So that was my initial exposure. I've just been talking a lot. I have more thoughts on vaccines versus antibodies, but I want to give you a chance if you want to direct the conversation with questions. No, that was really good. And that's basically where we were going to go with it. Um, your company has been working tirelessly to come up with this, um, an antibody treatment for the coronavirus. Um, I think that based on some research that we did, you already came up with a medication and antibody treatment to treat those who um, are, it may not have been approved yet, but to treat those who are infected with the coronavirus, not as a prevention. Yeah, so, yeah, I'll tell you where we are right now. So we basically spent the next couple months since so that was january 29th and i called uh, a couple people on my team and said hey look let's start working on this and what what we did is i i knew this was going to be tough but i thought my technologies would succeed at it so what i did is i picked five different antibodies that were anti-sars neutralizing antibodies and the idea was we're going to try this technology i call it tumblr after like a kind of like a movie heist a heist movie where you're like using a tumbler lock in a bank, you're trying all the combinations. That's basically what this technology does. It creates billions of genetic versions of an antibody. The idea is one of those versions will sort of mutate just right to adapt to the mutations on the virus from the novel coronavirus from the SARS. And I, I tried it on five different antibodies because I figured, hey, I just need one to work. You know, I've got a river, let's build five bridges. At least one of them will get us across. Uh, and so for the next couple of months, we worked on that. It got kind of scary in the middle of March because the you know the coronavirus went from being this scary thing in China to suddenly it was starting to hit our shores. It was getting worse. The wave you know had reached us, and suddenly I go into work, and uh, the mayor of San Francisco and the chief of police is up on TV telling everyone to go shelter in place. And we got like a there's this or, uh, ordinance exception 10B, which lets people keep working on biotech essential biotechnology and medicine, um, but I. I knew people were freaked out. There was another company that shares our building who had sent everybody home because they had a COVID-19 case. And so I didn't want to tell anybody they had to stay working. What I did is I offered for the limited number of people, I thought we could just work on the COVID-19 project um, on a volunteer basis. Think about it that night. Next morning, if they wanted to, we could work together on it. Otherwise, if we didn't have quorum, I would just say, like, we don't have quorum, which was really irritating, honestly, because I was like, we're so close to maybe finding, you know, finding out whether we were able to beat this thing. And then 
the very thing we're fighting was going to be the thing that stopped us. And so I went home pretty, you know, pretty defeated and frustrated. And I woke up and I, I mean, I'll never forget. I had like, it wasn't just the people I talked to. It was like everyone on my entire team was like, no, we're absolutely going to go do this. And it actually made it faster. It was, it was like, honestly, I was, I, I'm lucky to work with people like this. They, they were, when everyone was at home freaking out, these people were like volunteering their weekends. They're coming in in the morning at night in shifts and everyone who wasn't directly in the lab was like acting as like a kind of like a halo on zoom above them doing analysis and coordination. And so we completed all of the analysis by, and we, we discovered the molecules. It was on, I think March 30th is when I started hearing back from the kinetics groups. We're like, Oh yeah, no, they're, they're, we're finding binders to the novel coronavirus. And we tried wow. those five, five different arms and all five arms succeeded. Wow. Um, and so we, and they were super potent too. We didn't just get them to cross. We get them to cross with high, ultra high affinity because we'd made billions of versions. And so you were able to search to find not just one that was able to adapt, but wasn't, was able to improve. Uh, and so then when we had those at that point, that was pretty damn exciting because that, that told us the techniques worked. Uh, and so what I did next was I wanted to go, it's not enough to show that it binds. You need to show that it's able to neutralize, that it had that same property that the original antibodies had against SARS to show that it has now against the novel virus. And two things were, were issues for me there. One is that I didn't have that virus in my lab and nor did I want to. And second, I'm a small, I'm on a small group. And so I thought what I, what I had to my advantage was the radical transparency in science, which is the same th reason that I let people into my world for the, for the vaccine um, Netflix documentary. I knew that that could be a power that could assist me here. And so what I did is I took our antibodies and I sent them out to five laboratories. I sent them out to uh, national labs. So Galveston National Lab at UTMB. I sent it out to the Department of Defense, US Amarid Lab of Jay Hooper. I sent it to Peter Kim's uh, lab at Stanford University, to the Temperton Lab at the University of Kent. And I sent it to Sinobiologicals in China. So five labs, three nations. And I sent my antibodies out to all of them to run what's called a neutralization test. And that's where you have, uh, you have your antibody. You have, in some cases, they had pseudovirions. In some cases, they had live virus where they're actually taking the coronavirus or they had like chickenpox or HIV where they'd put the spike of the coronavirus on there just for different reasons. The different labs had slightly different ways of asking, can your antibodies block the virus? And what you do, the simple, I mean, at the heart of it, you're mixing the virus with the antibody or not the antibody at different concentrations. And a, and a cell, like a lung tissue cell or some other cell that the, that the virus is able to infect. And you're asking the question, does the antibody block the virus from infecting the cells? And the answer was, was resounding yes. And the laboratories had pretty amazing agreement on which ones they identified were the most potent, which was making me really happy because this is right around the time when the, I mean, excuse my French, but it was an absolute shit show what was going on with the antibody diagnostics. And so the fact that we were getting really good neutralization results across these five laboratories across three nations, and particularly some of them were national labs who have, they don't care about my company. They have the national interest at heart and, you know, they're associated with grant grant agencies that I was trying to get the attention of was really good for us. So at that point we had our leads, we knew the ones that were super potent and then it's the same idea, right? I sent it out. The five labs were basically my five bridges across another river. And so then to do the next, the final step is I needed to test that it actually worked in a life form. And the reason I thought that was so important is that remember in the beginning of this outbreak, the people were trying all sorts of crazy drugs and they were going directly from in vitro tests. So like, did it work in a test tube to trying to work in patients? And that was like the, you know, they're kind of, there's like a lot of crazy results around chloroquine and some other things where some studies were showing they're working and some that they weren't. 
And the whole problem there was that the, nobody bothered to test it in an animal first. They were just rushing it. And you can understand why they had to do that, right? Is that we were in a crisis and the doctors need to give people something. But it would have made things a little clearer if people had taken an animal and just asked the question, okay, like as a hamster, hamsters can get COVID-19. Can the drug protect a hamster? And so I wanted to ask that question. I wanted to make sure we, I wasn't wasting my time on a medicine that wasn't going to protect a life form. And so I got the two labs that have access to this, this hamster model. This was the Galveston National Lab and then the, the U.S. Amarid uh, Department of Defense Lab. So they both have these what are called biosafety level four laboratories. They're, that's the spacesuits that go in there and they have hamsters living inside of the, the containment area. And uh, they're testing with our, our antibodies. Our favorite antibody is called Centi, it's B9. Um, we, <laughs> coincidentally, nice name. So it's B09, but we call it benign. Um, it, uh, that antibody was the, our favorite. That's the one they tested first and they've tested others. Uh, and so what happened was down at, uh, down at UTMB, so at Galveston, they did the uh, therapeutic model. And so that's where you have hamsters. Um, half of them get infected with the novel coronavirus. So SARS-CoV-2 and, uh, hamsters will, healthy hamsters will start getting basically COVID-19. They'll get a bunch of lung damage. They'll get symptoms. They'll stop eating. They lose weight. Their hair gets all ruffled. They're, you know, they're pretty bummed out. Um, so they're, they're a good model to test to see if your drug can protect them. And so we ran a therapeutic test there. So the, the hamsters were sprayed in the face with COVID, COVID causing virus. And then a day later they get the antibody or they don't at a pretty low dose. We gave 15 mg per keg, which is, that's about a dose you could give a human. It's a very reasonable dose. And then over at the Department of Defense, they did a prophylactic model. So in that one, you're asking the question, could your antibody be given to healthy uh, hamsters or immunocompromised hamsters? Um, and, and you have some hamsters who received the antibody or ones that didn't. There were some that were healthy and some that were immunocompromised. And then a day later, you expose them to the novel coronavirus and you see, do they get sick or not? And the results were pretty awesome. So for the anim the animals that or for the therapeutic case where the animals were already, already infected, the ones that received our, our antibody had 97% reduction in virus in their lungs within 48 hours. They had a whole bunch of resolution of lung pathology, um, and they start eating again. And then for the therapeutic ones, it was even more severe. So like if, if, if you already, sorry, prophylactic, so like preventative, if the, if the, if the hamster already had our antibody before they're even exposed to the virus, then it's just a massive reduction. They're basically heavily protected from getting the virus in the first place. Those, those hamsters don't even look like they, uh, they were getting sick at all. They're just continuing to gain weight and kind of just be chonky and run, roaming around and being happy. Whereas the ones who get, who don't have our antibody, they lose a bunch of weight. They look, they look, they look pretty rough. So that is, is, that basically tells you that like, for, if you are a hamster, the crisis is over, you're good. We have a medicine for you. Um, and we now turn our attention towards, okay, that's the best evidence we have short of going into a human trial. So that's what we have to do next. And so, and you still need to do that. So a hamster is not a human. It looks really good, but you need to run the trial to make sure it's going to work. But that's basically where we are. We're in manufacturing of our drug. Uh, it has been not a smooth process of getting funding from government or manufacturing, but we've managed to tinker our way through it. We're uh, moving into being able to run clinical trials towards the end of the year. And that's awesome that you're able to put it together so quickly with the right team members. That That's awesome. It's helped. You know, I think a lot of people have collaborated really well internationally. I've been um, very appreciative of people's willingness to go run these studies. Numerous of those groups that I talked about didn't 
pay, didn't charge me anything. They just ran them because they wanted to get the stuff done. Um, and uh, other groups like uh, Charles River Laboratories has volunteered to support our safety and talks, which is, it's pretty expensive. And they're running all that for us pro bono, which is really awesome. So I think there's been a lot of, there has been some areas where there's been a lot of support that's been really welcome. Uh, we're also, so I'm doing traditional, if you kind of notice, I like to build multiple bridges across every river to try to get, just basically make sure I can have a bridge failure and still get to the other side. So we're also doing that with manufacturing. So we have traditional uh, Cho mammalian expression manufacturing, and we're doing that with Millipore, which is this mega company that's really good at that. Uh, and a company called Adam here in the Bay Area to help us create the pure cell lines. Uh, that material, that takes, that takes time. They're doing it super fast compared to how long it takes in peacetime, but we're still talking about it being, you know, a six month process before the material is ready for clinical trials. Uh, so in parallel, we're also working with a company called SwiftScale. So they use a, they have a way of producing antibodies in bacteria. We've engineered them a bit to allow this to happen. And, uh, they're a much newer company. So it's kind of a more complicated conversation with the FDA because they're a new process, but they have the promise of being able to have the material re ready, you know, potentially three months earlier. Uh, and the other advantage of their platform is that we could produce the drug through their platform through an entirely different set of factories. So these manufacturing sites than the, the mammalian expression, which is what everybody else is producing their antibodies with. And so therefore, I, I think that it, it is a good idea to have, be able to produce our drug in two different ways to reduce the chance that we might kind of like not have enough manufacturing capacity in, in the assumption, in the event that we have a good drug that works, I want to make sure we can make enough of it. Very good. You said a lot, um, gave a lot of good information. So with B09 or benign, is that what we're calling the drug for right, right. now? Yeah, it's Centi B9. That's right. Yeah. Centi B9. For this medication, so we've seen when we did the hamster studies that it worked prophylactically to prevent the coronavirus, and we saw that it was very good as a treatment medication. So right now, the next step is trying to get into human trials. That's right. Yeah. So the next steps are, one is manufacturing, which is, this is a long and very precise process of manufacturing the drug at a specification that, that the FDA will approve for administering into human subjects. And that's called a GMP manufacturer and a process called CMC. So we're doing that with two different companies. And then the other part that we're doing right now is safety and toxicity assessment. So before you go put your drug into a human, what the FDA likes to see is that you have taken your drug and it would they do two things. One is they give a high dose of the drug to, to animals. In this case, it would be rats and make sure that a high dose doesn't cause a life form any harm. Uh, and the second thing you do is you take your drug and they kind of smear it across tissue slices from human cadavers. And you're basically checking to make sure your drug doesn't stick to any human organs. So it's not going to have any weird effects on organs. And we're doing both of those, those tasks with uh, Charles River Laboratories. And those are really your main things that you're doing. You're also handling a lot of paperwork with the FDA in preparation for what's called an IND. It's basically setting up your new investigational drug and getting the approvals to start running your clinical trials. So with the coronavirus being a pandemic um, and the cases increasing um, in the United States, is the FDA kind of loosening the red tape a little bit or is it still the same process for any drug to get approved? So that's an interesting question and I think we were all wondering about that. 
I think what the FDA has done is that they've been much more responsive. I think they, I'm honestly kind of, I don't understand how they sleep because many, many companies have reached out to them with new medicines. Some of which I think have a lot of merit. I think it's also the case that some companies are taking whatever crazy drug they have that's against some other indication and they're trying to weave a magical story about how somehow it might be useful for COVID so that they'll get the FDA's attention. Um, but, but I think they're, the FDA has created a really streamlined process to talk to them. In terms of what they're allowing, my impression is that the earliest companies who got in the door really early were able to kind of surf on the panic a little bit to get some special, kind of skip certain steps. But I don't think in general, at least my experience with them has been that they're being fast with respect to responsiveness, but they're not allowing safety steps to be skipped. So we are going through the pretty much a meat and potatoes process that we would normally go through in peacetime. The difference is that they just seem to be very responsive. So often instead of having to talk, send in a request and then wait three months to talk to them, they might be responding the next week. Okay. And then with your um, treatment, would it be useful on its own? Or do you think that we would have to use it um, in combination with other medications? So it should be able to be useful on its own. The way the antibodies work are pretty simple. They go and stick to those spikes on the outside of the virus, and that makes the virus no longer infectious. There's two phases to the COVID-19 disease. The first phase is governed by that infection. Uh, so that's the period where your symptoms are because your lung tissue is being infected and your your you know, cells in your nose, whether that's specific like sensing cells or neurons are being affected. This virus seems like it is able to potentially infect multiple different cell types. Um, and so your body is sort of kind of cells are dying because of that. And that's why you're getting symptoms. During that period, an antibody therapy is your most kind of powerful way to protect yourself. The later stage of the disease is by the time you're being intubated or when people have been sick a long time, uh, and you're having organ failure, that part of the disease is now compounded by a second whole set of problems due to excessive inflammation or hyperreactivity of immune response. Um, that part of the disease, it would still help you to go block the antibodies, but there's a second class of medicines that would benefit you as well. And um, there's been recently a steroid that's been a, shown to have some um, beneficial effect on reducing death. And because that steroid isn't acting on the virus, it's actually acting to tamp down the immune system. If I were a patient, if I, if I got the antibody very early, the antibody would probably be enough. By the time I had uh, severe symptoms, I would probably want a combination of both medicines. I assumed that it would be more in a combination with the other meds, but it makes sense that it would uh, do really well standing on its own. 